Well, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. For those of you that might be new or um, haven't been here in a while, kind of like me, Um, I'm just kidding. Um, We've been in the book of Romans for a long time and and, uh, we've been going verse by verse, working our way all the way through it. And uh, we've had uh, a break from that uh, since I've been traveling a bit with my uh, wife and and family and and, um, one of the things that we've been doing, uh, that I've been doing, that I think is really important is, is for me to, to go to other churches. And so I've been going to uh, across the country, really. We were in Dallas last week. Um, we, you know, for me, it's really uh, important that I, I get outside of this church because this, I, I, I live here. I actually had a, one, of, one of our families, one of the kids, uh, he's, I guess, three, four, and he came up to me and he said, Mr. Trent, do you live here? And I thought, you know what, it's kind of like that. I do feel like I live here. And so it's good for me to, to kind of get out and uh, see what God is doing. And, and one of the things that I'm always excited about that God confirms in my heart is that, man, God is doing some incredible things around the world. And he's doing some incredible things around the country. And so visiting some other churches, talking to some other pastors um, has been a huge blessing for me. Uh, because our mindset here is we always want to get better. Um, no matter you know, where, where we're at or what we're doing, we want things to be better. And so that's always been my mentality and uh, always been our prayer is that wh- wherever we're at today, God, what, do you, what can we do better uh, to meet needs better, to uh, preach the gospel more effectively, to reach our community for Jesus Christ in a, in a, in a, in a better, uh, more powerful way. And so that, that's been our heart. That's been what I've been doing. So thank you for um, allowing me to do that. And, and I know we've had some great uh, messages and great uh, preaching uh, while I've been uh, out. Heard last week was incredible. So uh, anyway, here we are, Romans chapter nine. Uh, as we continue to move through uh, this book, with one of the greatest letters uh, in the entire Bible, uh, a guy named Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. Some of the deepest, richest uh, truth and theology is in this letter. So I'm excited, uh, particularly today, because. Uh, for uh, this entire series, like this is one of the most pivotal passages really in the entire Bible. And so as we kind of wade into this this morning, I do want to pray and ask God to help us as we hear his truth and as we uh, just open up uh, what, what some uh, view and some see as a controversial uh, theology or controversial part of scripture. And we want to embrace all of God's word. Um, all of God's word is living and active and important for us to preach and teach. And so we don't want to avoid any teaching that God puts in his word. We don't want to avoid any, any doctrine at all. We want to, uh, preach it emphatically and passionately. Uh, if he put it in there, if he teaches it, then it's important. And so for us, we want to be able to wrap our minds around it. Um, and so as we do, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, uh, right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. Lord, those that are in this room today are here for a reason. We know that you have drawn us into this place. And so we know that your, your word is living and active. We recognize your spirit in this place this morning. Um, and Father, as we uh, begin to address and talk through some of these issues that for many um, have been a source of contention, we want to ask, Father, that you would give us the grace to understand 
the grace to be able to um, have hard, complex truths, um, being able to, in, in only your timing and your grace, be able to understand and embrace and, and passionately worship you as a result. Lord, you are good. Your, your word is good. And I pray that you would in, in, enable me and help me to communicate that truth this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, here's the question. The question is, um, in salvation here, that there are some people that believe in Jesus and go to heaven, and there are some people who do not believe in Jesus and they go to hell. So, why is that? I mean, is God a loving God to create somebody knowing that they would spend an eternity in hell? I mean, why would he do that? And, and what's happening here? And, and the ultimate question is, is Jesus choosing some to be saved and not choosing others to be saved? I mean, that's the question. I mean, that is a big question. And it's been debated for centuries. And we're not going to answer that question today completely. But I hope to shed some light from his word this morning. And, and uh, as, we, as we enter this, we know that any uh, theological debate is kind of like this circle that we could run around, you know, for decades and years, and it has been for years and years and years. And so uh, we want to uh, see what God's Word has to say, and we want to understand it in, in, in the proper way. Because the Bible uses words, and we talked about it when we were in Romans 8, words like predestination, uh, the elect, uh, those that he ordained. And so what do we do with those words? It's not just one verse, it's all throughout the scripture. And so uh, everyone has this concept or understanding of what predestination is, what it looks like, what is election. And so some of us have thought through it and, and, and you're with me and some of you have never thought through it and some of you are like new to church and new to Christianity and you're like, man, you are, this is way out of my league. I don't know what you're talking about here this morning. Um, the long and short of it is, I do believe that God brought all of us here this morning for this message and for this word. He does not do this by uh, accident. This is all part of his plan. And so as a, as a way of recapping, we did the first 10 verses uh, the last time I was preaching. And um, the issue that Paul was bringing up is, is, did God's promise to Abraham back way in the Old Testament, did that not come true? Did, did God not come through on his promise? Because here's the issue. The issue is um, God makes this promise to Abraham and then there are all these Israelites, all these Jews that are rejecting the Messiah. They are rejecting Jesus. And so Paul's looking around and he's seeing, okay, there are some Israelites, there's some Jews that are, that are saying yes to Jesus, receiving him. And then there's this huge group that, that's not. So is God's promise of saving Israel, is it not occurring? Is, did he not come through on his promise? And he begins to display and explain that, no, 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 God's promise was not that the entire nation of Israel, that all of them would receive the blessing of salvation. He, in fact, said that there are some that are part of the family of Israel. They were born into the family, but they did not and will not experience the blessing of salvation. And so he begins to display this and begins to unpack this. And, and the promise, he says, was not given to all physical Israel, only to those who were chosen. And the example that he begins with is with a guy named Jacob and a guy named Esau. And so that's the last verse that I shared with you that week. Is, is it says very clearly here in verse 11, if you want to turn, he says that uh, the, uh, the older, verse 12, sorry, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now, this is, this is, this is like mind-blowing. Is God hating an individual here? Is, 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 is God really truly, I thought God was a loving God. I thought God was, you know, passionate, caring, and, and all that. How can a loving God actually hate someone? What is going on here? The reality is he's explaining and using this example as, as, as something that we know as the doctrine of election. And so we wanna, I want to discuss that a little bit today, but I want to read through these verses um, together and then talk through them because everything that we say, we want to get from God's Word, not just uh, a theology class or a book. Uh, but let's, let's jump in verse 9. He says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, they had not done anything either good or bad, or, um, sorry, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Jacob and Esau, same parents. Um, They were twins. Um, One God chooses, one God does not choose. Why? What's happening? Well, let's think about the story here. Let's kind of go back to the Old Testament. You remember Abraham had a son. His son's name was Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And from the very beginning, even in their mother's womb, uh, Rebecca feels her two boys like wrestling inside of her. And so she goes to God and she asks God, what's going on? Give me some insight here. And God responds and says, you know what? These two boys are going to grow up and they're going to lead their own nation. And they're going to be at odds and they're going to be fighting uh, each other and in, and in conflict their entire life. Um, Esau was born first. And the Bible says that, that Jacob had the heel uh, of Esau as he was born. And so uh, even from the very beginning there was conflict. Now Esau um, is known as the father of Edom. A lot of people uh, believe that that is the, the nation of Islam today. And then Isaac grew up up and led the nation of Israel. Uh, And so obviously the conflict began in the beginning and even continues to this day. Uh, Jacob was born second. So Esau was the oldest son. Esau's name literally meant hairy. And so uh, he he was also known as Edom, which means red. So Esau, you might think of him as Elmo. I don't know, from, from the Sesame Street. He was a red, hairy little child, I guess. And so so Isaac's name um, was literally means trickster. So he was a trickster. And um, uh, later in the story, we, we, we discover why. Um, here they are at odds. Um, Esau, the man's man. He was the hunter. He was the gatherer. He was the go out and kill stuff and eat red meat guy. Okay, uh, uh, Isaac was the mama's boy. Stay at home, get doted over from his mommy and get spoiled essentially uh, by her. Kind of like to hang out with her and not leave the house much. Uh, and so one day... Um, Esau is out, he's hunting, uh, he comes home and he's starving. And um, uh, Jacob had made some, some soup. And so they get into this conversation, he's starving, he wants to eat, and Jacob says, hey look, I'll trade you some soup for your birthright. Okay, now what is the birthright? Well, in that time, uh, the oldest son uh, was guaranteed the birthright from his father, which means he had the, a special blessing from his father, 
which means that when his father died, he would lead the family. And it also meant that he would get a double portion of the inheritance. So it was a huge, big deal. And so here we are, he's offering him this suit for his birthright. And if you have read the story before, you know that Esau agrees. He trades his birthright and eats the soup. And we're like, that's the dumbest like, thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's like, different sermon will go there one day. But uh, so here is uh, Esau losing his birthright. Jacob now gets the special blessing. He tricks his father later and gets the special blessing. He also gets the double portion. And he's the leader. And here is Esau. He is left out in the cold. So back to our scripture. Paul is saying here that before Jacob, before Esau, did anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might be fulfilled, he says, I love Jacob and I, I hate Esau. What does that mean? Now, obviously, I mean, you read the entire Bible from, from the beginning to the end. And 1 John 4 says that God is love. I mean, all throughout the scripture, God is love. Is, hate here is not meaning that God disliked Esau because his point here is before they did anything either good or bad, one was chosen, one was not. So remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so Paul is quoting this passage from Malachi and, and, and we have to dig deeper. I mean, what, what does it mean? What does God mean when he says this? And so after further study, we, we realize that that Hebrew word doesn't mean that he disliked Esau. What it means is that he didn't choose Esau. So essentially, that verse literally means, Jacob, I chose, and Esau, I didn't choose. The word literally means to pass over or not to choose. And so Paul's point here, going back, is God's promise being fulfilled? Did God break his promise? And he says, no, God didn't break his promise. Not all Israel was going to be saved. There's a portion of Israel that would receive the blessing of salvation. And there was a portion that were not chosen. They were not going to receive the blessing. And here's my example. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. When we give the Bible an honest and prayerful reading, we see the reality that's hard for a lot of us to grasp, especially in America. See, the reality is that God chooses to bless some people and he chooses not to bless others. God chooses to bless some nations and he chooses not to bless other nations. Now, we can watch the news and we can see this as a reality. I mean, we see it all over the place. And sometimes we just blame the people of that country. Well, they've, mad, they've made poor decisions. They've had bad leadership or they've, you know, they've been selfish or they've done this. And our forefathers, they just worked harder and sacrificed more. And, and, and that's why America is blessed and they're not. And it's like, well, well there's, there, there, there's some things to be said about that. But at the end of the day, the reality is all throughout Scripture, Jacob and Esau, God chooses to bless some and he chooses not to bless others. So what do we do with that? How do we understand that? His point here is that Israel was chosen to be a blessed nation, but not everyone in that nation would experience salvation. And his example is Jacob and Esau. So this gets us into the doctrine of election. Let me just read a definition of what the doctrine of election is. It just simply states that before the foundation of the world... God chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. 
So, so God chooses some to be saved because of his sovereign good pleasure. Not because of anything they have done or not because of anything they are going to do, but simply because of his good pleasure. Now, let's look at Ephesians 1. I think we have it on the board here. It says this, even as he chose us in him. So even with this verse, I mean, we see this choose, chose language. What do we, what do, we do with that? As a, as, a, as a believer, we have to have a framework for how we, how we view these verses and these words that God uses. And we can't run from them. We, we must embrace them because obviously God is trying to teach us a very powerful truth here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So here, as well as others, before the foundation of the world, God is choosing that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, so this is a loving God acting in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here is God before the foundation of the world, choosing some to be saved, choosing some to be adopted as a son, as a daughter in the family of God. Not because of anything uh, foreseen merit in them that they were going to do or say or, or because they were going to accept or because they were going to do something great in their life, simply because of his good pleasure. Now, there's two camps of thought on this. And uh, for some of you, this is going to continue to be like, what? And for others of you, it's going to bring some clarity. But uh, there was a guy named Jacob um, that, that really formalized this understanding in a way that even today uh, has been carried on. His name was Jacob Arminius, and he was born in 1560 uh, and died in 1609. And so there are five points to Arminianism is what it's called. And um, I'm not going to really unpack all five of those because we don't have the time to do that. But I do want to explain just in the realm of the doctrine of election what, what he taught, what he believed, and what his followers uh, came to believe. And so what he, what he taught uh, as far as election is concerned is that God uh, looked down the, the chasm of time and he saw Trent Stewart. He saw, you know, Greg Gibson. He saw those in the future who were going to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And because uh, we were going to accept Jesus, he predestined or he chose or he elected that person. So, so again, let me pause here. We, we, we can't just ignore the word predestination. We can't just ignore the word election. We have to understand it one way. And so this is... This is one way to understand it, that God sees who's going to choose, says, okay, that person is going to choose, so then I'm going to predestine them. I'm going to elect them to salvation. That was uh, Jacob Arminius's understanding, what he taught, uh, what his followers taught. Um, so essentially, election would begin with us. So, so here's the illustration that you, you could think through. Um, you're drowning in the ocean. And as you're drowning in the ocean, you reach your hand up. And then God sees your hand reaching up, and he reaches down and grabs you by the hand, and he saves you. 
So that's the visualization of what Arminians believe. Now, the, the Methodist Church uh, is going to follow this doctrine. Um, charismatic Church, um, Free Will Baptist Churches are going to follow this uh, understanding. Men like John Wesley, men like Greg Laurie, who is currently an evangelist and alive today, uh, hold to this understanding, hold to this idea and concept of election. The Pentecostal Church uh, as well. The other camp, um, led by a man named John Calvin, uh, sees election in a much different way. Uh, John Calvin, born in 1509 to 1554, actually um, way before uh, Jacob Arminius. And so their understanding is quite different. So the, the Calvinistic or Reformed view of the doctrine of election says that God's election is 100% his good, sovereign purpose and will. It's not me drowning in the ocean, reaching up for somebody to save me. It's me in the ocean, drowning, not knowing who or what to turn to, and God graciously reaching down and grabbing me and saving me. And so the idea for them is not that God is looking down, you know, in the future, seeing who's going to accept and not going to accept. God is, is choosing before the foundation of the world, not based on any good or any bad that any of us do. Now, the, the real issue then comes to this, that, that salvation starts with God, it ends with God. See, in the Arminian view, if it, it starts with us. What are we going to decide? And if we decide to say yes to Jesus, then he elects us. And so that logically takes you down the path that, okay, I chose to be saved, and then I can choose not to be saved, or in fact, I can lose my salvation. And so that's where that trail leads you. And so in, in, in the other trail, that, that God is 100% the person that initiates our salvation and he sustains our salvation would be the other view. So, so here's what I would say. You can be an Arminian, and some of you are like, man, I didn't even know I was an Arminian, but I guess I am. And some of you are you know, more Calvinistic or Reformed. It's like, I didn't even know that. But here's the deal. You can be either and be a part of our church. I mean, this, this is like a, a, a family discussion. You know, there are family discussions and then there are discussions we have with the world. Jesus is the only way. This is kind of like the family discussion. Um, both camps would say that the word of God is, 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 is God's word, is perfect. Um, uh, both would say and believe in the Trinity. Both would believe that Jesus is the way to salvation. So what I'm saying is you can believe either way and still be an, an amazing Christian and we all better be friends. What we've decided as a church is that we're not going to argue about this. Well, I I encourage discussion, but we're not going to argue and be contentious over the matter because that gets us nowhere. We want to be united for our love with Jesus. And these are just issues that are, you know, might be encouraging to talk through and will definitely lead us into a deeper walk with Jesus as we do that. But me personally, where I stand on this issue is that I don't believe God looks into the future and chose me because I was going to choose him. Because I know me, first of all. And there was no way I was choosing him. It was completely, 100%, his act and gracious act of saving me and calling me to salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, at the same time, we are held responsible for our decisions so that when, when God, you know, when he condemns sinners to hell, it's not because he made them sin. You know, if, for, for those that don't accept Christ, they deserve hell as punishment. That, that's the righteous decree that God grants and God gives. 
And at the same time, you and I aren't robots running around, you know, doing everything that, that, that God commands. And we have, to, you know, it's not like that at all. We are responsible. We make decisions that are real decisions. We make decisions that are real and that have consequences. And at the same time, God chooses some to be saved. And so we wrestle with that. It is taught all throughout the Bible. And we have to understand it and embrace it. And, and it leads us to to a, a, a deeper appreciation for our salvation. And, and, and it would humble us as we think through it that God would choose any of us and that God has saved any of us because we all deserve hell. So on this little insert here, if this is something you want to read more about, kind of dig into a little bit more, we've got a lot of great resources in our cafe. One in particular written by Mark Driscoll is called Religion uh, Saves and Nine Other Misconceptions. Grab that. has a chapter completely on this issue that will help you think through it. But at the end of the day, here, here we go. There, the, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see in part and that God has secrets. <laughs> so in other, in other ways, there are some things that we wrestle with and some questions that we wrestle with that the Bible doesn't answer. This is one of them. How do we, how do we you know, get all this and, and spread it out and make it smooth and make it... Well, there are some things the Bible says, um, especially regarding election and predestination. Um, the, the Bible talks about the mystery of God's will in Ephesians. And so there's this concept that we're not going to know everything completely here uh, from God's word on this issue. But he does shed much light on it. And we embrace the fact that God does elect. And we embrace the fact that, yes, I'm held responsible for my sin. And so I must receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. His, his point here is that God chose Jacob, did not choose Esau. So your next question, and if you've read, you know what that question is. Is that fair? <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that just? Is that a good God that's choosing and not choosing? What? What, what's, what's happening here? And the, the next scripture helps us to unpack that. Let's take a further look. Verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, By no means. For he says to Moses, Okay, got to go back to the Old Testament as an example. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, it doesn't have anything to do with what we decide or what we did or, or any effort on our part, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and here's, here's the, the, the example, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. All right, so is God unjust? Paul's answer is absolutely he is just. He always does what is right. He always does what is good. And his example is his example with Pharaoh and Moses. So quick history lesson again. Let's jump back. Um, Pharaoh has under his control the, uh, in Egypt, uh, they worship Pharaoh as God. He believes he is a God. And uh, roughly three million Israelites are in slavery to him in Egypt. Uh, God chooses a man, uh, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and proclaim, let my people 
go. Uh, he does many miraculous signs and many uh, miracles uh, in order to, to change Pharaoh's mind. He does not. And as a last uh, kind of resort, God sends the death angel, which for any person that did not have the sacrifice blood of a lamb on their door, the firstborn male in that family was killed. Once that took place, Pharaoh's own son was killed uh, by the death angel. He finally relents and lets the Israelites go free. As they, as they are leaving, um, he changes his mind, sends his army after them once again, and we find them, he finds them at uh, the Red Sea. Here is Moses with all of these people, nowhere to go, Pharaoh's army rushing uh, in upon him, and then uh, Moses holds up his staff, parts the Red Sea, they go in dry, gland, uh, dry land, Pharaoh's army rushes in after him, and they are all killed. So his example here goes to this story. And when you read this story, and he alludes to it here, when he closes with verse 18, he says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Um, Roughly ten times in that story in Exodus, the Bible says that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. What do we do with that? God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh to accomplish his will. Man, that's some deep stuff. I mean, why, why would God be doing this? I mean, if, if God is in heaven, you know, making us sin, hardening our heart, making us sin, then, they, you know, and then he's punishing us for that very act in hell. That's not a very, I mean, that's not a just God. It'd be like an abusive father, you know, beating up his son, throwing his son across the room. And in the air, he knocks over his milk. And then the father punishes the boy for spilling his milk and whips him. It's like, thanks, Dad, you jerk, you know. It was your fault. I spilled the milk. Chuck me across the room. That's not a just father. That's not a just God. So something here much deeper, right, is, it must be taking place. The Bible also says in that story that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And so how do we deal with this and what would we say and, and how, how would um, God have us understand this example? Um, Exodus 10 times says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But at the same time, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And he chooses to rebel against God. He chooses not to let the Israelites go. He chooses not to, you know, embrace Moses' God. He chooses to rebel and reject him and continue to keep them as captives. And here's the deal. God chooses not to change Pharaoh's heart. God allows Pharaoh to continue in his sin, to continue in his hardened state so that his purpose might be fulfilled. Just as God allowed Judas to sin and betray Jesus, God doesn't change Judas' heart. He allows him to remain in rebellion, in sin, in selfishness, and choose to betray Jesus. And at the same time, God is not making him do that. He is willingly choosing to betray Jesus. And at the same time, God is using his decisions to Accomplish his will. The same way that God uses King Herod 
to murder Jesus. And Pilate, all making the decision, willingly deciding to execute Jesus and in their sin rebel against God. And at the same time, God is using them to accomplish his will. Why does he do that? Each man rebelling against God, and at the same time, God is displaying his sovereign choice. Well, it tells us right here in Romans 9 to show that it doesn't depend on human will or human effort, but only upon God's purpose of election continuing in this world and in us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very popular verse, I'm sure you know this, says, It's by grace that we are saved, through faith, not of works. So, so God is, is choosing us. He is allowing us to experience his salvation. He makes this decision before the foundation of the world. And it's not dependent upon your effort, effort not dependent upon your decisions. It is completely an act of his grace. Now, to further explain this, John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, No one can come to me, this is Jesus talking, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus clearly teaches that, that none of us, you know, abruptly just say, wait a minute, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. You know, Jesus, this doesn't work like that. The reason why you're here today and this might be like a newsflash for some of you, is because God has been calling and working in your life. The reason why some of you are here today and you're kind of figuring out the whole God thing and the church thing and the religion thing, you're like, man, I don't know why I'm here. I got invited by a friend maybe, or, or I'm not sure you know, what's going on. I'm just kind of here. Let me encourage you today that you're not here by accident. That the Holy Spirit of God moving in you has drawn you into this place. And so there's good news with that. That God is alive and real and moving in your life. And you may not be where you want to be. Hey, neither am I. And I'm still working on myself. God's still chipping away at old Trent, you know, every day. Kind of pounding me out. Kind of, you know, messing with me. Massaging, you know, his truth and, and changing my mind and my attitude on many things. But praise God, man, I'm enjoying a relationship with him. And some of you are here maybe for the first time or maybe, uh, maybe just a few times this summer trying to figure it out. Where does God want us? What is God doing? And I'm telling you that God is doing something in your life and it's why you're here today. God draws us to himself. That's the first step in salvation. It's not me reaching to him. It's not you reaching to him. It's God reaching to you. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So Jesus, again, teaching us that I chose you. You didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. It's like, but wait a minute. Why did you choose me? I was, I mean, I was, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm horrible. What, why would you choose me for anything? And it's for his grace and purpose. And man, that humbles me. And that leads me to worship a little bit more intensely. But Jesus also teaches us that we're held responsible for our sins. And so we willingly choose to sin. I mean, some of us willingly choose to sin. We willingly reject God. Some of you, listen, some of you were like, man, for you to experience salvation, it was one catastrophe after another, wasn't it? 
I mean, you were going your way and you kept banging your head against the wall and God kept calling you back and he was using your, you know, maybe your family or maybe a friend and you kept rejecting and you kept running away and you kept choosing, you know, sin. And then finally it was like a light switch went off in your head and, and Jesus came in and he saved you and you're like, oh, now I get it. And it's, oh, what was I doing? I was an idiot. And, and some of you went through that. Some of you experience God just calling and calling and reaching and reaching and working on you. And you finally came to that place to where you said, yeah, I receive you into my life. You see, we're held accountable for our decisions. They are real decisions. God punishes us for those decisions. He tells us in John 24, sorry, 824, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so he's pretty clear there. He's like, unless you believe in me, you will die and you will justly be punished for those sins. God's not making you reject him. He's not making you sin. We choose that, which means we deserve hell. All of us, we deserve hell. And God saves some. To me, that is mind-blowing. Paul's point is that you know, we're all kind of like Pharaoh. We all kind of worship ourselves. We all view ourselves as God because we spend our time and energy and money and focus on our needs. And so many of us just tend to worship ourselves and we reject God's grace. And God would be right to condemn us all to hell, but he chooses to have mercy on some. He chooses to have compassion on some as he did with Moses, as he did with Jacob. Now, here, here's where... Here's where some of us battle this idea. You know, we live in America, and so in America we have this, this concept of fairness and of justness. And so if somebody, you know, breaks something of yours, you expect them to pay for it, right? If somebody offends you, then you expect them to apologize to you. If somebody hurts you, somebody does something to you, you feel like they owe you something, and, and so even in our marriages, we offend each other as, as husband and wife, and, and, and we expect the other person you know, to apologize. And not only that, it goes a little bit deeper. We expect them to do it first, don't we? It's like, you better do it first. I'm not going first. And we'll not talk for weeks until somebody finally breaks it. So it's like we have this concept of, if you owe me you know, when you hurt me, or you owe me when things happen. But here's the deal. We've got to remember this. We've got to accept this, that we mistakenly believe that God owes us something. That God owes us salvation. God doesn't owe any of us anything. We are the ones that broke his rule. We are the ones as his creation that broke his standards. So we owe him. He doesn't owe any of us. And as a result, we need a savior. As a result, we need somebody to step in and, and, and make this relationship right. And, and there's no way that you and I could ever do that on our own. And so God provides a way for us to experience a relationship with him by condemning his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. And by that, we're able to experience salvation. We're able to, to apologize in a sense and confess our sin and receive Jesus. And by doing that, we experience heaven. We experience a relationship, restored relationship with God. So God doesn't owe us anything. It's one of the reasons 
we see this concept of adoption. We read it in Ephesians, that we are adopted um, into God's family. This is, a, this is a concept that is so rich and, 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 and true for us today. Um, God, you know, is, relates differently for, for us than, than like me as a dad. For, for my four kids, you know, I'm responsible to them in, in, as such that I'm physically, mentally, spiritually responsible for them. I owe them because I, you know, I was, I was part of the deal, you know, in creating them. So I'm the dad, right? And so I owe them, you know, a good fatherhood to them. It's a natural relationship. But with God, he doesn't owe us anything. And so that's why the Bible uses the word adoption. Adoption is making a son or daughter who is not legally yours, legally your son or daughter. So, so God's not owing us this adoption. We don't, we don't, he doesn't owe us that relationship, but he adopts us and he says, you're not legally mine. I'm not bound to you, but I'm making myself bound to you as I adopt you into my family. Whew, that's pretty awesome. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, that's pretty amazing that he would do that for any of us. Another wrong assumption The wrong assumption here is that God is obligated to show everyone in the world the same amount of grace. I mean, we kind of feel that way. That's our, that's our, that's the fairness within our sinful nature that we kind of, you know what, God, you gave me this. You should, everybody should get this. It's like God's not obligated to share that same amount of grace to everyone. But it's hard for us sometimes to, 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 to think through that. But the examples are clear. Pharaoh did not experience the same amount of grace that Moses did. Esau did not experience the same amount of grace that Jacob did. And all throughout history, God's choosing men and women to accomplish his will, to do things, to be saved. And, and he is showing his grace and mercy to some. And some, in their willingness and their sinfulness, choose to reject him, and he chooses not to show the same amount of grace. And I don't know how that all works out. I don't know how it all, you know, you know, kind of co, you know, coincides together at, at, at all levels. And that's why the Bible says that there are some things that we just don't have answers to. But I know that you and I are held responsible for our sin. And at the same time, God chooses some to be saved. And so what's our response to that? Our response to that ought to be intense worship. God, you, you, chose, you chose Moses and now we're saying you're choosing me. So this is humbling me. This is leading me to an understanding of worship with him that, that is a little bit different than what I've experienced in the past. Because now I'm understanding adoption. Now I'm understanding the doctrine of election. Now I'm understanding that God is alive and well within me. And that I don't have to worry about losing that salvation because I didn't do anything to get it. Therefore, I, I'm, I'm not going to do anything that can lose it. Now I can rebel. I can, I can, I can get myself into sin and, and, and lose many blessings that God maybe wants me to experience, but a true believer who has authentically given their life to Christ, then then they're not going to do that. God's going to sustain that salvation and that growth in their life. There's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, but in the end, if you've accepted Christ, then we know that that salvation is secure because it is God reaching down to you. It's God reaching down to me, and it is completely 100% Him. And so today, we want to close with a response time to, to first of all, take the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we want to remember his sacrifice, 
Remember his blood that he spilled on the cross for our sins. Remember the body that was broken for our sins. Remembering that as a believer in Jesus this morning that he has done this for you. And in so doing, he has, he, he has chosen you to be a son, a daughter in the family of God. And so when we receive this, we want to receive this with a gracious, thankful heart. And the band is going to sing a song over us that it's going to encourage us. And, and uh, maybe today you've never accepted Christ and, and you know that's the next step for you. I want to encourage you at some point today during the song at the end of the service, we'll have some counselors standing next to this door and they would love to pray with you and talk with you and encourage you in that decision. Um, this, this idea of the Lord's Supper is for those who've accepted Christ. The, the Bible teaches us that every time that we, we take the Lord's Supper that we need to examine ourselves, and so we want to take that time now. Uh, to examine ourselves, to confess sin to Him, spend time in prayer with Him. And when you're ready during this song, whenever you've had time to do that, I want you to take this on your own and do this uh, just between you and the Lord. The, the folks are going to um, pass the, the, the bread and the juice uh, out at the same time. The band is going to lead us in a song, and you take this whenever you're ready. Uh, we want to go to Him with thanksgiving and with worship for what he has done for us, remembering that the bread is his body and the juice is the blood that he spilt for us. I'm going to pray and then our folks are going to pass this out. I want to encourage you to right now begin to spend this time with the Lord. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, we come to you realizing what you've done for us. And Lord, it humbles us And we pray, Lord, that it would lead us to a a deeper desire to worship you, a deeper desire to know you. So, Father, we come to you as we uh, take the bread, as we take the juice, remembering you, the sacrifice that you've made for us. We do not do this flippantly. We do this sincerely thanking you for forgiveness. Thanking you for your sacrifice. Thanking you for for allowing us to experience your grace that we did not deserve. And as we worship you this morning, we pray that you would move us in a closer walk with you. Speak to us and challenge us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.